Hello, everybody, and welcome to What's the Story Podcast, WTS 274. My name's Danny Murray. I'm Graham Merrigan. I was right in the 274. I love it. You were right. You were, yeah. Uh, and this week, we're welcoming back an old friend. At this point, he's not a friend. He's a family member. And it's great to see him once again. The wonderful, the beautiful, the intelligent, the clever, the stunning, the magnificent Philip O'Connor. The Bowes Trump. I thought, th- hang on a second, is somebody else on as well that I didn't know? No, <laughs> that intro, I don't recognise myself at all, Dad. But then, as we were saying off air there, I don't recognise you either. Jason, you're looking brilliant. Yeah, Mero looks like he's been out telling people how to park their cars outside the Olympia Theatre. He has a woolly hat on there this evening, despite being indoors. Was so we won't go into that. It's cold. It was cold out when I was walking the dog. Well, that's the thing, though. I, I, I saw many lights on in here. It looks like fucking Switzer's window at Christmas. Me missus will kill me now because the electricity bills later on. But anything, because I, don't, I know a lot of people are listening to this, but we're actually looking at each other doing this, you know, so uh, I have to be a, a little bit in the light anyway, you know, so great I, to be back, as always. I, I had to purchase a ring light because the, the overhead light is shit in here. So I purchased a ring light. I didn't, I didn't like where that was going, Mel. <laughs> <laughs> for reference, it's not it's not a light that you shine. What are you looking for? It's <laughs> not a light that you shine out your hoop. It is uh, it's one of those uh, it's a uh, I believe oh, it's an influencer light, is it? I was going to say makeup and influencers. That that's where you get that. And Cubes made the recommendation. She was like, "Why don't you get one of them to cost a tenner? I was like, "John's a bad show." And yeah, it's doing the job. Um, what do you get it for? Uh, well, for stuff like this, and then for work when I have to be on camera for work-related matters. Oh, oh, the, the pandemic. I, I'll tell you, there's some lab at a factory in China after the pandemic has made a fortune oh, out of ring lights yeah. and stands and USB microphones. Oh, but the one thing, and, and if we can, if we can beg the good listeners, the great sound people that listen to this show week in, week out, this award-winning podcast, stop with the poxy backgrounds lads right we know you we know you're not sitting in southern california right we yeah. know you're sitting in ballybrack and it fucking doesn't look like that you know yeah. and it drives me mad you know these lovely sort of interior designed houses i know you're washing up is just out of the picture lads let it go i'm not judging you here you know but please get rid of those and you know we're the blurry edges around Phil. their head oh jesus no yeah. never again we're definitely yeah. judging phil I, I, I am judging if they do use them I'm judging them definitely if there's a pile of washing up in the background that's grand I mean Mero I can see that you have a pile of coffee cups there in the background and porn mags and a whole lot like, I'm not <laughs> judging, that's like you know you do you I will <laughs> always is that the Sean Michaels edition of Playgirl Graham is it yeah yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. Um, <laughs> Phil how have you been my friend it's been it's been a couple of months it's been a minute and whatnot, and the world is it's a madder place than it was when we last talked to you so, so how's life for you yeah, I mean, that's the thing, Danny. I always love it when I get the text message from yourself or in this case from Graham going, oh, do you want to come on the podcast again? Because the answer is always yes. And then you always think, well, geez, what are we going to talk about? Because it's not even at the, at the stage now where Danny sends me a WhatsApp and says, oh, we're going to talk about this. You know, they just wind me up and let me off. It's been <laughs> mad. Like, you know, so over the summer there, I did the usual thing of like, you know, around about Christmas time, in the days after Christmas, we get together as a family and we decide that we don't like each other enough to go on holidays. And then I go and find something, you know, to do for myself. And then all all of a sudden you get a call when you're in England at the women's Euros, you know, wandering around Brighton and Southampton. Oh, by the way, we're going to Greece. Make sure you feed the rabbit when you get back. You know, that kind of thing. You know? <laughs> so, so I did that. And then, you know, things have opened up again. You know, I'm, I'm always wary of this thing of saying, you know, the pandemic is the pandemic's not over. I'm sure, you know, we, we talked about, um, you know, comorbidities and things that people have, you know, we still have to be careful. There's still an awful lot of people at risk, but that said, you know, we're treating life as if it's over. So, you know, I was in Las Vegas there recently for the UFC fight. Um, Nate Diaz's last fight in the UFC. Kamsat Chimaev, the Swedish guy, 
uh, was fighting on that card. So I said, I'd go over and do a little bit of work there, you know. And, you know, what I cannot understand is how he can miss weight by seven and a half pounds when Danny can drop 40 kilos in a couple of months. Like that. <laughs> What's happening here? So I got to say... What is the story there, though, Phil? That's nonsense. I, th- I think that was one of those things there. That, you know, so pe- for people who don't follow the UFC, Hamzat was fighting at, at 170 pounds. So the weigh-in is the day before the event. And for non-title fights, you have a one-pound limit. So he could have weighed in at 171, right? Now, the advantage is that the lower weight, the, the lower the weight class, or you, you can come down to the bigger you're going to be, right? So when Conor McGregor was fighting at 145, he was always what's considered a big 145, or his natural weight's probably 155 for fighting. Um, I'm doing this, kind of the same thing myself. I might compete again next year in jiu-jitsu. So I'm trying to get down to 88.3 kilos below that. I'm currently at about 92. And, you know, if I can just, if as long as I don't gnaw the padlock off the fridge door, I'll probably get there, you know? <laughs> but the thing about when you're weight cutting or cutting weight for sport, um, you, it's like it has to be a very managed process. And a lot of it is to do with timing and it's to do with discipline. So fellas who are getting up on the scales before a boxing match or a UFC fight, often the way they will lose the weight is they literally drive all the water out of their bodies, right? So they'll dehydrate themselves entirely and then they'll get up on the scales and they'll be ready to tip over most of the time. I'm sure you've seen people standing on the scales looking awful. And then after that, there's a managed process again of rehydrating and more nutrition, that kind of thing. And I think basically what happened was the hams that started too late because if you go into a severe weight cut like that, if you severely dehydrate yourself, after a while your body just goes hang on a second pal this is not a good idea right so i'm not doing this anymore and it doesn't matter what you do your body just goes up i'm not doing that I'm not going to, I'm just going to pass out in the sauna. I'm not going to sweat anymore. I'm done, you know? And I think that was what happened to Hamzat because he cramped up, which is usually a sign that there's no water left in the body. And that, but it's also the body telling you, look at pal, you need to get water on board here, you know? So he came in seven and a half pounds over and that caused chaos on the card, but it caused a good kind of chaos because it was kind of, things were rambling along. He was supposed to meet Nate Diaz. He probably would have thumped the lard out Nate Diaz. Wouldn't have been any crack. But it reworked three fights on the main events, uh, on the main card, mm. and it turned out to be a brilliant weekend and all that controversy and everything else like that, you know. Now, I don't know if he'll ever be allowed to fight at 170 again. I think he can make the weight. He just has to manage that process just a little bit better, you know. He's but the fighter means- that uh, pontificates the Chechen leader, isn't he? Uh, Hamzat is, yeah. So he, like, he'd be a favorite of the Chechen president, a guy called uh, Ramadan Ka- uh, Kadidov. Yeah. Uh, or Ramadan Kadidov, I think his name is. And, you know, this is a real complicated one. So, you know, when I was going over there and I was talking to Swedish media outlets saying, okay, I'm going to be in Vegas for the Hamzat fight, right? Nobody gives a shit about Hamzat fighting. All they cared about is his opinion on Putin and his relationship to Kadidov, right? And that's great. I understand why that, that's a big thing, right? We re- remember Conor McGregor, I think in 2018 at the World Cup, took a picture with Vladimir Putin, talked about him as a great leader, et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, the difference between Conor and Hamzat is... Hamzat doesn't talk about this, right? And I've asked him before and he just shakes his head at me. Like, and no, this is without microphones or cameras or anything else like that. And I've asked him if you, if you feel, I've basically asked him, do you feel like talking to me about this? And he shakes his head, right? You're essentially talking about a dictator, right? And he has attached himself to Hamzat rather than the other way around, right? So it's kind of like boiling the flog. I think Hamzat at the beginning, when he, you know, he was getting a sort of a limo ride in from the airport to meet the president, he thought this was cool. But then all of a sudden, you know, Kadidov expects things to him. And I don't actually know if Hamzat is in a position where he can say no to Kadidov now. 
right? You know, it'd be like one of the famous cross-country skiers or a famous Russian ice hockey player saying no to Putin. And it's not what will happen to them. Oh, they'll probably be back playing in the NHL or competing in cross-country yeah. skiing. Of, what happens to their family? What happens to their father and their uncles and that kind of thing? And I think without comes that ever having said this to me, I do think that that's what the fear is there, as it often tends to be when people are sort of, you know, held up as an example or, you know, used, essentially used in sports washing in this case, you know, and I don't think he has a whole lot of choice. And the unfortunate thing is that when the Swedish outlets ask me, he doesn't talk to a lot of them because he knows they're going to ask these questions, right? And he doesn't want to lie to people. He doesn't want to say to people, you know, oh, he's a great bloke or, you know, no, I, I, you know, he doesn't want to tell the truth either. So yeah. he just says nothing. And I think that that's a little bit sad in a way because if we look at, if we zoom out a little bit now and we talk about the World Cup in Qatar and we talked about it with the Beijing Olympics in China and everything else like that, I have a hard time, you know, looking at Manchester City and saying that Erling Haaland uh, needs to come out on the side of human rights and everything else like that because, the young is not very clever and there's not a whole lot that he can say in his position in any diplomatic way that's going to make any difference to that situation. So it's actually better that he says nothing, you know? Uh, so, I mean, I wasn't able to do the work that I wanted to do with Hamzat. I'd love to sit down and be able to tell that story and see how that sort of affects him personally. But I think if that's going to happen, it's going to be long after Khalidov is in the grave and that dictatorship has fallen because I don't think at certain times it's not possible to get the story about somebody, you know, what certain people are still alive. So it was a bit sad and it's kind of sad as well that the guy is... Now he has two negative things, right? He has the Kadyrov connection and he has that weight uh, cut miss as well, right? So now he's the heel. Now he's the bad guy in the UFC. That almost suits him because he's not expected to go out there and be nice to anybody. He can let all that drop and just be a complete bastard if he wants to. And that suits him an awful lot better. A little like the Colby Covington thing, a little bit like Mike Tyson was in the day. Mike Tyson never had to pretend that he was a nice guy. He just went out there, smashed people, did his thing, you know? Uh, So I think that actually suits him, you know? But it is, it's, on the surface, it looks like a really simple thing. Oh, you're hanging around with a dictator. You need to distance yourself from that guy. But like everything else, under the hood, it's an awful lot more complex than that. Yeah, you've touched on You've touched on about 15 things there that I want to ask you about, Phil. So I'm going to try my best. Like Phil always does. We don't don't have a pen and paper and you're trying to think of segues here. Like I'd about, Danny had 15, I'd about six. It's just, you you let Phil talk for four minutes and you get four months of material. It's beautiful. I love it. (laughs) This is why I'm on the, my face should be on the logo now as well. This (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you, you mentioned there about kind of like you mentioned sport washing. I do I want to come back to that, but I'm just gonna push it one side for one second, right? And you mentioned Erling Haaland, or you said it a lot more beautifully than I did. Um, and the, the expectation maybe that's placed upon sports stars these days to, to speak out when don't wrong, it's great when you see them speaking out, and it's great when they do take a little bit of a, a social conscience and say, I'm gonna put my hand up and say, I don't think this is right, and here's why. There's no obligation but, to do so, though. But, but this is it. I think there's there's maybe an expectation. Maybe there's a little bit kind of we all look at Muhammad Ali and we all think he was the greatest, and you know he he, he picked his moments and he said his and everybody remembers that it. brilliant and beautiful. And, and but it's not always as clear cut and as always as simple as that. And in this instance, when you've got a dictator who maybe is you know cozying up to you when you're not too comfortable with it, but you're equally aware of the dynamics of how things work in a certain country and you have family members there and you're kind of like, best thing I can do is keep my mouth shut and disappoint a lot of people over in, over in the West or whatever who say, you should be speaking up, you should be doing this, you know? Like, are we expecting too much of sports stars in this day and age? I think we are, Dan, because by the time it gets to 
you know, Kadyrov putting out a picture with Chimaev or, you know, Erling Haaland won't be playing at the World Cup now because uh, Norway didn't make it, you know. But mm. if we're expecting, you know, Alexander Mitrov- Mitrovic from Serbia to speak out about these things, it's like, hold on a second. This was nothing to do with him, right? He didn't choose... You know, he wasn't part, he didn't vote for this or anything else like that. He's a footballer with a very, very limited career, right? The biathlete Sebastian Samuelson, who I've had discussions about politics with, you know, and, you know, because he's trained a lot and he's competed in Russia, he's talked about doping, you know, he's really come in for an awful lot of grief, right? And then I was talking to him about competing at the Olympics in Beijing, right? His career is limited, right? You're probably talking Mm. about at the top level of biathlon, three, max four Olympics, right? Unless you're, you know, beyond all and this fucking great Norwegian who seemed to go on forever, right? But... Why? Why should they have to be the ones to boycott? Why should they have to be the yeah. ones to speak out when Nike won't do it, Budweiser won't do it, yeah. Ireland won't do it, Denmark won't do it? You know, wh- wh- why is this on them, right? So we're also asking people, I've maintained for a long time in Nordic media in general, and people sort of, you know, took a step back when I said it the first time. It's like, stop asking Holland questions about Manchester City and about that kind of thing, because he actually doesn't have anything I want to hear. He's not yeah. going to progress the thing, you know. He's the young flip, right? He's what, 21, 22 years of age. He's a whole heap of money and not a single opinion that I have any interest in whatsoever, right? Now, there's a big difference between him and Tim Sparrow, the former Finnish captain who I texted him today because I want to talk to him about these things. Tim is somebody who thinks deeply about these things. The reason I came into contact him was several years ago when uh, Qatar was awarded the World Cup. It could have been the first World Cup that Finland made it to. How would he be about that? Certain players already said they were boycotting the national team over that, right? He's somebody you can talk to over it. So my point on that would be, and then the other thing is that if you have to speak up about one thing, if you decide to speak up about one thing, well, then you have to speak up about everything. No, we cannot place those demands on people, right? So LeBron James comes out and wears a T-shirt I think it was in memory of Eric Garner saying, I can't breathe, right? That doesn't behove him then to come out when every black person or person of colour is shot dead by the cops in the United States. He doesn't have to do the same thing for everybody, right? He is more than entitled to pick and choose and to have an opinion on things and also to not have an opinion on things, right? And what you avoid there is this sense of what about me, right? People will always come at me going, what about it? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this fucking specific thing here, right? Now, you can work out what I think about things from most of the things that I say, but at times, we'll probably talk about it a little bit later on, right? The whole Russia thing is a mess, right? I disagree entirely with the invasion of Ukraine. It's an absolute disaster, and everything begins and ends there. you got to pull back, lads. This was a mistake, right? I understand why it happens in the same way that I understand why the IRA did the things that they did in Northern Ireland. I am neither condoning nor excusing either of those two things. I understand understanding is not the same as condoning it, right? Mm. But if we get back to the athletes, we're talking about often relatively young people with very little experience who have dedicated themselves from the time they were eight or nine or 10 years of age to being the absolute best in the world at one thing, right? They're not writing war and peace, right? They're not reading manufacturing consent by by Noam Chomsky, right? That's not who these people are. And we have to have the correct expectations of them. Now, you can walk into, you know, the, the FAI headquarters in Abbottstown and you can ask hard questions of everybody in there who's involved in the process. Where did our votes go? Where do our money go? Absolutely. That's their fucking job right but it is absolutely not the job of you know Seamus Coleman or of Harry Kane or of Erling Haaland to go and explain these geopolitical things to me and frankly I don't want them to do it if a player decides to boycott that I will absolutely support them in that but again that's up to every single one and we can't demand that they do these things that's just too much of an ask for young people so Phil in, in regards to Eddie Howe's appointment as Newcastle United manager and he was 
it was brought up on a more than one occasion at his press conferences. Um, you know, are you aware of who your owners are, this, that, and the other? Do you think that was inappropriate or do you think like, do why do we care what Eddie Howe thinks of Saudi Arabia? I think that the question always has to be asked, Graham, right? So if I can if I can ask Jim I have a question, I, I don't ask a question if I know I'm not going to get an answer, right? It's mm. just, to me, it's pointless, right? We To use that horrible term, it's a virtue signal. Me, me sticking up your hand to talk to Dana White about things I don't care about. I'm not going to do that, right? Eddie Howe is different because he's a grown-ass man who has seen a bit of the world and is doing this for the money, right? He is not in this because, you know, it's furthering his career. He was doing really, really well and he would have continued to do well without ever going to Newcastle United. The same cannot be said of Alexander Isak, who's now Newcastle United's record signing and came from, you know, basically over there, right? Alexander's, you know, I've known him since he was 16, 17. He played for AIK here in Stockholm, signed for the club for, I think it was about 70 million euros. And, you know, again, another young player, if you were to ask him about that, what the fuck does he know about Saudi Arabia? What does he know about uh, the death of Khashoggi? What does he know about, the, you know, this... Uh, uh, the whole thing of Mohammed bin Salman, and oh, you know, this is going to be a better country. We're modernizers, but we're taking our time. He doesn't know anything about these things, but it is absolutely fair to ask that of Eddie Howe because Eddie Howe was management, right? So if we want to go back old school, the 1912 lockout, 1938 lockout, we can say that there's a difference to me between the workers, which the players and the athletes are in this case, and the managers, which the FAI and Eddie Howe are in this case, right? Now, Eddie Howe is never going to give you a satisfactory answer. I would have hoped that. The best you can hope for in that situation is for somebody like Eddie Howe, who, you know, they've entrusted with a job, for Eddie Howe to come out and say, look, we have heard these things about issues around Saudi Arabia's record coming in terms of human rights and that kind of thing. I am hoping that we can do all we can to work with them to help them to understand why these concerns exist, right? Now, that's straight out of the car communication. I'll it in the boards right away, Phil. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Like, if you come out and you deal with that, what more can you ask of Eddie Howe then? Eddie yeah. Howe can say, I'm working behind the scenes and trying to help people understand that that's all I can do in this position. I'm also, admit to it, Graham, I'm also an ambitious man. I want to do great things with this football club, with these people. These owners have come in now. I'm not the one who decided it. You know, if the Premier League doesn't want these people in there, if they're not fit and proper owners, as, as the terminology is, then fuck them. Don't let them in. They've been let in. That's above Eddie Howe's pay grade, right? But I do expect something to be a little stronger from the Olympic Committee the Irish Wheelchair um, uh, uh, Association when it comes to sports, uh, when it comes to you know the FAI, when it comes to whoever else, right? they need to be the ones to be taking a stand, right? And one of the interesting things ahead of this World Cup, lads, has been the Nordic football associations have come together and they've had a sort of a united front, right? And that's because you have strong player unions here under, the, under FIFPRO, the Global Player Union, and they got together to talk about these issues of migrant workers. Now, I think they were sort of used a little bit in their own way for sports watching. But the new president of the Norwegian Football Federation is a woman named Lisa Klovnes, right? I'm annoyed with Lisa at the moment because she hasn't texted me back. I wanted to talk to her last week, actually ahead of this conversation. It would have been great to share what she had to say. Lisa's a gay woman with three children. And she got up in front of people in Qatar and she said, we need to do something about this, right? We, I, as a gay woman, need to be able to come here and know that I'm not under threat, that I'm not under threat of imprisonment. And you know what? Not only that, the gay people living here and they exist, need to be able to live here in safety and security. Now, what do we need to do as a sport, as governing bodies, as a huge global event that the World Cup is to ensure that that happens? Because if there's going to be anything out of this, lads, 
it will be that sense of progress. For the most part, it never happens, right? After the yeah. uh, the Olympics, the Winter Olympics in Sochi uh, in 2014, I think it was, the next thing that happened was the annexation of parts of Ukraine started, yeah. right? That was what sports watching was used for there. Same thing after the Be- Beijing Olympics, the crackdown, the Uyghurs started there. So, the, you know, they do, they buy the credit and then all of a sudden they use up that credit in repressing other people, right? But we always have a chance to break that cycle and we need to do that now with Qatar. We need to say to the people in the Middle East and we need to say to these regimes in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, like Qatar, like Kuwait, like any place that has these kinds of laws, yes, you are welcome, but you have to make everybody welcome. So, everybody has to be part of this. There's certain values that we all have to share if we're going to progress along this road together. So this this thing with sport washing, then, right? and we're seeing it more and more, and the term sports washing, people are going to hear it a lot more between now and the end of the World Cup later this year. And we've seen it, and Qatar and Saudi Arabia, let's stick with those examples, because Qatar obviously hosting the World Cup, and the controversy around them hosting the World Cup is is it's plain to see, and everybody gets it, and this whole thing of, like, it's the money. It's the money, the money, the money. Saudi Arabia, the same. If you look at what Saudi Arabia have done, you know, they've enticed uh, massive global brands like WWE over, and WWE hosts a big, huge pay-per-view event every single year now. I think it's a crown crown jewel. Is that what crown now? jewel, yeah. Crown jewel. Can I, can I just can I just comment on that for a yes, sec? Yeah, um, yeah. Just um in regards to the WWE, they signed a 10-year contract with the Saudi Arabian government. And I, it's it's definitely one pay-per-view year, but at one time I think the greatest Royal Rumble and the Crown Jewel, I think there might have been two. But okay. say there's been six since the yeah. start of their contract with the Saudi Arabian government. The first few pay-per-views, there was no women allowed on the card. That's right. The most recent pay-per-view, women were allowed to perform. So is that prog- progress? You- it, y- yes and no, Graham, right? Yeah. So what we have here is a situation... Sorry, I just wanted to... You yeah. so, so, so what we have here is a situation where compromise has to occur on some level, right? But compromise is not the same thing as change, right? If you're compromising to preserve the status quo, that's not real change, right? It's also, if you have it in, you know, I was at a UFC event in Abu Dhabi and it was in a sort of a bubble, right? And that bubble was not Abu Dhabi. That bubble was not the Middle East. It wasn't life as it's lived in the Middle East there, right? And we have to remember that, that the freedoms that are extended to me to drink a beer, not that I drink alcohol, but like, you know, I can drink a beer in a hotel, but I can't drink one out in the street there, right? But as a Western, white Western man, I'm extended that courtesy. That doesn't exist for people in Abu Dhabi or or in Qatar or in Saudi Arabia either. In Qatar, you cannot bring in duty-free into Qatar. Doesn't matter if you're a Western or you just can't bring it in, right? And there are hotels where you can drink and there's one liquor store as far as I know, and that's about it. They're the only place you can get it you can drink at home you can drink in hotels and you cannot be drunk in public right so that's compromise but it's compromise to preserve the status quo right change England are fucked aren't they they're fucked and the Germans and the Danes nobody drinks more beer than the Danes that are watching football like you know if you've ever like it's funny when you do games in parking anybody who's never done a game in parking uh, the stadium of Copenhagen you can see the journalists uh, do it straight away right because we sit in the press box but the press box is sort of halfway down the stand and there's a huge tier of people above us but there's no roof over us right so when Denmark scored last year against Russia 
Uh, and they start it was actually it was against Belgium or Russia I can't remember one of the European Championship games anyway every journalist who'd ever covered games before the first thing they did was close the lid of their laptop right and all you had was all the boys had never been there before and the next thing the Carlsberg is in their computers lads and that's their nice work done because it comes in an ocean because they just throw the beers up in the air and that's it you know now these people are going over there and this is the thing. Is that going to change, right? Is the situation for gay people going to change? And let's remember that men's football is also extremely homophobic to the extent where we have one or two out players. You know, we've had one lad uh, who played for Leeds, the American lad. There's one fella who they were talking about the last couple of weeks. Fair play to him for coming out, but he's playing for some backwater team above in Scotland, right? We don't have players in the Premier League until they have come. Thomas Hitzelsberger from Aston Villa at the end of Oh, was it Aston Villa West Ham anyway Aston Villa, at the yeah. end of yeah when he retired uh, he came out as being gay there women's football is the exact opposite you could not have a women's football World Cup in Qatar because I, I my conservative estimate maybe half the women might be gay and also they don't want it because it's women right yeah. these are the things we need to work on right we have to remember as we sit here tonight lads there are protests going on in Iran because of the lack of freedom for women because a Kurdish woman was beaten to death last week by the morality piece not because she wasn't wearing a hijab but because she was wearing it wrong and also because she's Kurdish right I couldn't believe that there was an actual police force called the morality police that's, but, uh, it's, existed since, heard of it, like. it's existed since 1979 I think you know and I mean it's where crazy. I live now I've both Kurdish and Iranian neighbours living all, all around me here you know and these are people who would have fled from that regime and it's to see that and to see women in public cutting their hair, people, women aren't allowed to show their hair in public, not allowed to dance in public. I think there's things about them playing music in public, you know, all sorts of things that didn't exist before, you know, the, the show was toppled in 79, right? And these are the things, if we're talking about football as being this great power for good in much the same way as the Live Golf Tour, you know, if I hear your man Graham McDickhead talking about, oh, golf is a great force for good, it's not. It's fucking, you know, takes up a lot of space where an apartment should be, lads, you know? <laughs> the sport <laughs> of golf yeah, yeah the sport of golf has done great things for the world yeah and I hear a certain Danny Murray from the, the that podcast what's the story I, I believe he's playing that again we'll get to that I think he thinks he's going to get an offer of several million from Saudi Arabia you know but but this is the thing that if we believe that these things are a force for good that can't stop after the World Cup is over right we but can't should, should, should FIFA the World Cup the, the Olympic Councils you know are these not conditions of hosting the competitions are these not the Olympic legacies are these not the FIFA World Cup legacies okay this, so this is the crux of it this, sorry Phil I was just going to say this, this is the crux of it as well right because what you've got is this so the WWE thing right you mentioned they've signed a 10 year deal with it right you look at other sport and franchise you look at other sport things Formula 1 right Grand Prix in Saudi Arabia Grand Prix in Qatar right they've signed up to long term contracts with these places do you know what I mean and it's not like they're it's it's not because motorsport is extremely popular in those countries, but because they have global eyes, they're, they're bringing that audience from across the world into it and people start to look at it and go, oh, maybe it's not so bad over there. Maybe it's not. When the reality is, you know, female spectators, you know, questionable. You've got a situation there. And again, like that, it's took the likes of Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen to a certain extent, kind of saying, mm, am I comfortable with coming here? Not particularly. Like, Ultimately, that's what caused the Russian Grand Prix to get cancelled. It wasn't Stefano Domenicali. It wasn't Ross Braun. It wasn't Chase Carey. It wasn't the guys at the top of the Formula 1 field chain. It was the drivers who said, that's OG Grand Prix. We're not fucking going. Mm. So it's... Can, can you see, can either of you see this um, happen at the World Cup in, in Mexico, US and Canada, where... People might say, oh, I'm against 
US foreign policy um, over the last 40, 50 years, I'm not going. I, no, I, I can't, is it a false equivalence? Is it a false equivalence? Yes and no, right? There's two, there's two complicated things. There's just two things I want to mention first, right? One is I have a good friend, Mario Majd, who's a, an Iranian female photographer. And recently, only very recently, for very select games, are women allowed to attend as spectators. But Mariam still isn't allowed to be accredited as a photographer for a men's football match in Iran, right? And it fucking... You know, it just fries my head that she's not allowed to do that because she's brilliant. And she wants to go to the World Cup in Qatar and she's struggling with the same thing because she's coming from an Islamic country and they go, what, what a woman photographer from Iran? No, we're not going to do that, right? What you were saying there, Graham, is... I think it's absolutely valid to raise those things, right? You can look at look at it through the prism and say, look, at, well, hang on a second. This is a country like the USA has enjoyed has engineered coups all over the world in Venezuela and say, like Cuba, all these kinds of places, right? Mexico and the way the cartels have been running the show there for a while, et cetera, et cetera. Just the way that, you know, this sort of, you know, it's almost like a cartel in itself, isn't it? When you see how much American money can influence things around the globe. It's absolutely valid. Is it a false equivalence? It, we're, we're comparing apples and oranges a little bit here, all right, you know. But at the same time, like if you go back to the 1980s there, you had at one stage, I think there was, a world, uh, there was an Olympics that was in Russia. And then you had the following Olympics was in L.A. And the Americans boycotted one and uh, the, the Russians boycotted the next one and that kind of thing. So these things have always been very, very political. But again, the, the point of the whole thing is to zoom out even further, right? The problem that we face as individuals living in democracies and indeed people living in dictatorships is that everything in this world that's worth having has been bought, right? Every government yeah. has been bought. Every sport has been bought. Every industry has been bought, including entertainment, et cetera, et cetera, right? And we need to be cognizant of that in everything that we watch, right? If you take the movie Black Hawk Down, do you remember that movie? It was an absolutely yeah, yeah. brilliant book if you read it about like what was a disastrous American military operation in, in Somalia when a couple of Black Hawk helicopters were shot down, which were believed to be invincible at the time. And it was one of the biggest American military defeats, if you like, in inverted commas, that had ever happened in Africa. And during the editing of that movie, 9-11 happened, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember speaking to somebody who was very involved in it. And they said that overnight, that became a different film because the story that you would have told pre 9-11 was absolutely not what of American military failure yeah. could not be told afterwards. Right. So this is what I mean when I say that entertainment is bought, right? You're not going to do these things. Disney are doing things, you know, with a, a black mermaid and the little mermaid, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're at the point now where people are worried about what the top half of a mermaid, what color she is. It's unbelievable, you know? And when we, when we see the world through those eyes, right, I have a very hard time watching international football, but certainly club football have a hard time watching it, right? When the Champions League is back next week, we're looking at something that was built on the money of Gazprom, which essentially is, you know, there's the energy crisis that we're in at the moment. They play a rather large part in it and our dependence on them that has happened over the 20, 30 years, they've been sponsoring the Champions League and how they've sort of, you know, endeared themselves to us. We all know what the logo looks like, right? It's bought. Football is bought, lads. The players are bought. And this is why it's so difficult to speak out because once you do that, right, if you go back to... um the man who took football to court to get freedom of movement for players, Jean-Marc Bosman, like, you know, a journeyman Belgian footballer trying to change clubs in France, right? But once your contract was over, the club still owned you until you were sold. And Bosman took people to court for that. He wasn't the one who made the money out of it, right? Holland was the guy who'd probably end up making the money out of it. All the boys who've gone on free transfers, where the transfer fees now go into the pockets of the agents of the players, they're the ones who make money out of it, right? So all of these things, and it's not just World Cups, and it's not just the Olympics, and it's not just whatever sporting event that you're looking at on your TV. It's, every, it's housing. 
It's the drugs that you get for the illnesses that you have or that you need to keep you alive. It's the car that you drive. It's the fuel that goes into it. And we really need to understand that that's the level, that it's in absolutely every facet of our existence. And this is why it can be so misleading to say that it's the responsibility of an athlete. You know, one athlete is not going to change anything. One team boycotting the World Cup is not going to change anything. Sebastian Salmerson doesn't go to the, the Beijing Olympics. The next Swedish fucking biathlete gets a chance going to hop in there, right? If Denmark decide they're not going to go, you know, whatever team didn't make it, you know, Bosnia might say, okay, yeah, well, we've got their place. That's great. They're going to go, right? That's not where the change has to happen. The power to change these things is with us and with our remote controls and with our Visa cards and our MasterCards, right? Because the moment we switch these things off, they're not worth anything anymore. And the moment we stop waving our Visa card or a MasterCard at McDonald's for a case of Budweiser or for you know a Ford Kia or whatever, you know, a Ford Kia, that's two makes a car there. But for, for a brand of car that we go, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying mm. that because they were there and they supported this thing in Qatar or in Russia or in China. And the moment we do that collectively, as millions, if not billions of people, is the time that things start to change. But be very aware as well that they know that too. And any sense of solidarity is quickly squashed when it comes down to why people go, ah, so they're all at it. The politicians are all the same. Actually, the World Cup, the Olympics are all the same. I oh, just got to sit down and watch it. And that's where we fall down because we can't stick together long enough to put these things right again. So, right, to, to shift gear a little bit, but still focus on issues of morality in a way. Yeah. Right? The, and Mero, you're, you're probably going to switch off a little bit here, right? The two stories in the last week from the NBA that have caught me eye, feel right? Boston Celtics coach being suspended for a year, and it's the Phoenix Suns owner and yes. the, the controversy around that, right? So how they're being dealt with, right? So the, for, for those who don't know, Boston Celtics reached playoff final last year. They were beaten by the Golden State Warriors. The coach, uh, whose name is after completely leaving e- email him, Udoka. Thanking you had an affair with a member of staff, with, with a female member of staff, and has been suspended for a season. All right, so it, does this happen elsewhere in sport? Or has the NBA become this kind of moral ground? We've seen it during the pandemic. We've seen it in how they've kind of supported Black Lives Matter. You know, they, they've cancelled games off the back of it. Remember the Milwaukee Bucks cancelled a couple of games because there was a guy shot and all that kind of stuff. Like The NBA seems to do things quite well when it comes to this morality thing. Is is it or is it just riding a wave of populism and trying to wag the finger of it? I think the NBA is definitely at the forefront of this, Danny. And the reason that the NBA is at the forefront of this is because they've been doing it for so long, right? Mm-hmm. So back in the day, right? I mean, one of my favorite subjects to talk about is you know the history of boxing and the history of NBA, right? And these are two absolutely, you know, decisive things in American culture and American history, right? Because the NBA was somewhere where, you know, basketball is essentially a street game, right? Yeah. It's a playground game. It's a cheap game to play. All you need is a ball and nine other blokes. And if you don't have them, you can play one-on-one. You can play two-on-two, right? You just need a hoop. You can, you know, orange box up outside your gaff, right? So white kids from, you know, the poorest, dirt poor parts of Indiana, like Larry Bird could play the game. But so could black kids uh, from, you know, the suburbs of New York and from San Francisco and from Los Angeles and from, you know, Compton, all these places. And very, very quickly, it became a game where black people could make money, right? But in the 50s and 60s, there was an unwritten rule, right, among the NBA owners at the time that you could only have one black player on each team, right? Now, the Boston Celtics go hand in hand with this, right? Because they were the first team 
to have an all-black starting five in the NBA, right? They were the first team to hire a black head coach in Bill Russell. Bill Russell suffered the most egregious racism you will ever hear about in American history. He was brought to the Boston Celtics, right? An absolutely brilliant player, tremendous defender, changed the way the game is played entirely, both on offense and defense, right? Somebody broke into his house, stole his medals and his trophies, and they shat in his bed, right? Because white people in Boston did not want a black man who was seen as being uppity because Bill Russell never apologized to anybody for saying, I am your equal, right? Bill Russell and his teammates went into a diner. Now, I think it was in Kansas, but it could have been Kentucky, one of the K places, right? And they said, we don't serve one of the K places. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what they plays How surprising is that? You know, yeah. and they went in and they said, we're, "You know, we're not we're not serving the the colored players in here. We don't serve colored players in here." And Bill Russell got on a plane with three other players or four other players, and they just went home. Right now, you had Bob Cousy, who was a white guy who went to college in the, the Massachusetts area and everything, real sort of you know all American hero. And that kind of thing. Bob Cousy never understood why Russell was doing what he was doing, but Cousy was the or, sorry Russell was the one who changed all of this, who made it okay to be a black man in the NBA and to say what you thought about the way that you were being treated, not just by the NBA and not just by the Boston Celtics, but by all of American society. Right, he was with Muhammad Ali at the famous press conference where Muhammad Ali was going nuts about you know the way he was being treated after coming back from the Rome Olympics and so on and how he was being sort of singled out. So Russell was an absolute... To me, he's not just the greatest basketball player of all time. Forget LeBron James, Michael Jordan. He's actually the greatest American of all times, right? Because with the limited power that he, have, that he had, and he only passed away recently, he yeah. had the strongest voice you could possibly have. And every NBA team is going to play with a number six in their jersey in honour of him now because he's passed away. But what happened with the Celtics there was Ime Odoka had what the club has called a consensual sexual relationship with a member of staff, right? And then the member of staff said that the person... Uh, in question that she had been receiving unwanted messages. I'm assuming it's a she uh, had been receiving unwanted or unsolicited messages from email, right? So somewhere in there, and the club has been very tight-lipped about it because legally they have to be, right? Now, what's happening here is that Ime Udoka will probably never sit on the bench for the Celtics again, right? If you ask me, his career is over, but there are legal hurdles to be gotten over. They've done an investigation through a legal firm and they decided that this is serious enough that he has to sit down for a year. We have to suspend him for a year. I don't think there's anything... like They would have to be very convinced that what he did was so serious and so egregious that he's not going to come back. But to be seen to be doing this, and this is the Boston Celtics, this is the club that was called out for a decade or more by Bill Russell for tolerating racism in the Boston Garden and in the city of Boston and in the state of Massachusetts. They have to be careful around these things, right? The Phoenix Suns owner was found over the period of about a decade to be dropping racist messages, saying racist things and sexist things, right? Stories the about NBA, him are insane. It's just wild the things that people are saying. And yet we shouldn't be surprised because these things happen. This is who these people are, you know, but the NBA is doing the right thing in removing them from the game because the NBA is also very aware that you have the WNBA where again, there's a lot of gay athletes. There's a lot of uh, black athletes. You have Brittany Griner who's sitting in, in prison in Moscow now for having cannabis oil going into there. And there's great efforts being made. She's become a sort of a figurehead for everything that's going wrong in Russia and the, the Russo-American relationships there. But they have no choice but to take the moral high ground because the players demand it of them right but Danny if only one player if only LeBron James was doing this it wouldn't happen right but mm. everybody's behind it's a yeah. kip America is a kip 
But 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 it's the people like this. It's the people like LeBron James, you know, to the extent that he does it, because he's also very wary of the fact that, you know, he has a lot of money coming in from Nike. And as Michael Jordan said, Republicans buy sneakers too. But the likes of Jalen <laughs> Brown, who plays for the Celtics, is a very intelligent young man, went on marches to Georgia to protest against police violence, et cetera, et cetera. You have a sense of solidarity and a sense of unity there. And that is an example of what I was mentioning last time. Out. That sense of solidarity can change things because not only do they do that as a player's body and as a player's unit, the fans back them, right? Mm. Everybody in the USC goes, oh, you're going to keep politics over, man. Politics has, nothing to do. politics has everything to do with sport. You literally couldn't get a credit card between sport and politics because that's the way it's been since the fucking dawn of time, right? It's been about competition. It's been about my village is better than your village, right? But it's in finding those things and finding that voice. And this is why it's so easy to love the NBA, because the NBA is the America that I want to experience. The NBA is, the, is it, to me, it's the best of America. As I said, Bill Russell, to me, is the greatest American of all time, bar fucking none, because of what he did and the things that he taught me. A white bloke who grew up in the north side of Dublin and has lived his life on the road. What he taught me, things that I could never possibly have imagined by watching him play and by reading the things that he said and how he conducted his life. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for the Los Angeles Lakers. He's become a brilliant writer. His substack is wonderful as well. There's so much of the black American experience. So those of us who grew up watching cowboy films and that kind of thing, we just couldn't have understood it without these people. And that's only a fraction of what there is to know, but it's also a symbol of what is possible when we all get together and we all strive for the one thing, which in this sense is equality in every sense, both racial, sexual, in terms of justice, social justice, all of those things. The NBA is miles, streets ahead of Formula One and everybody else. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's, it's it's mad and it's it's the speed at which it was dealt with that got me like i'm i'm very much like you know a, a casual 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 nba fan in terms of like following and everything else especially in the off season but the speed at which these stories sort of came and the speed at which they were dealt with and you had adam silver out doing doing press conferences and saying his bit and everything else that it wasn't allowed to rumble on it wasn't allowed to become a kind of a dirty conversation that you know the media had to kind of pile the pressure on and everything else. It just it came out, it was dealt with, and people are talking about the aftermath straight away. Like, mm. well, I think that that's absolutely essential as well because it's sometimes there's a, a, a school of thought in PR, as you well know, Danny, right? If you just keep your fucking mouth shut, it'll eventually go away, right? I remember years ago, uh, when I was working for Reuters internally, and a story I can't even remember what the story was, right. But the same day the story broke, and it made the headlines here in Sweden and everything. You know, Reuters had done something wrong. I don't know if we got a story wrong or what it was. It was on the front page of, of you know every newspaper's website, if you can have a front page on that. And then it was the same day that F- Freddie Lumbay, who used to play for Arsenal, and Olaf Melbay, the Aston Villa centre-back, they had a punch-up, right? And that went straight onto the top. And the Reuters thing just fell off the front pages straight away. This bust up between two of Sweden's best players at the time just wiped it off. And that was a case where if you just shut up and say nothing, eventually something else will take over, right? You know, it's like they say on Twitter, every day there's some guy who's the story on Twitter. And the objective when you get up every morning is don't fucking be that guy, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the, the NBA works like that as well. But they know that... If you don't say anything, if you don't act, and if you don't act in the way that the players and the fans expect you to, there will be repercussions, right? So mm. you would have a situation where you'd get Suns fans, and I was over there when this was happening. I was actually with uh, Jose Youngs of MMAfighting.com. He's a big Suns fan. He goes to the games and that kind of thing. He's actually a Celtics fan, but because he lives in Arizona, he goes to see the games, you know? And he was saying that you get people tearing up season tickets, people won't buy merch, people won't renew their league pass, they won't watch on the TV, they'll start getting onto advertisers, because... 
it's an that sport has an activist culture, right? It, people do get out, they do march, they do get involved in corporate social responsibility and those kind of things as well. Now, if you had the same thing in, in soccer, right? You know, uh, the way the Americans would call it, we don't have that sense of solidarity. We're extremely passive. To the extent where Abu Dhabi can come in and buy Manchester City, uh, you know, Abramovich could come in and buy Chelsea, Saudi Arabia could go in and buy Newcastle. And essentially what you get is, you know, 24 hours of a bit of a storm and then a shrug of the shoulders and Alexander Isak is playing for Newcastle, you know. So they did, like you know, the NBA doesn't accept that anymore. And I think in part it's the players realizing the power that they have, but it's also that that insight that one individual can't do these things. You know, I was um, I was up at the airport. This will be you love this, Dan. I was up in the airport recently. Where was I going? I was going to Norway before the women's Euros because I was doing a bunch of stuff with the girls during the day there. And I met Enes Kanter, the Turkish basketball player, now known as Enes Freedom. And I was just chatting with him briefly. He was leaving. He'd been over here to collect some prize or something. And he was leaving. And he spoke out about the when the way the NBA is dealing with China, right? Because mm. it's very, very quiet on the Chinese issue, right? And you've had people from the Houston Rockets have spoken out about that situation and been told, shut the fuck up. Don't do this. It's a huge market. All of a sudden, you know, Houston Rockets games disappeared off TV there. Cantor spoke out. And now all of a sudden he doesn't have a club. Now, if you ask me, he's probably not at the NBA level anymore. But if you ask him, he's going to go, I spoke out, so I'm being victimized. So there's, you know, the NBA is by no means perfect, but they are certainly an awful lot more proactive in terms of, you know, the sports washing they do was almost for themselves. You know, the things yeah. that they get involved in is almost for themselves and they do brilliant work, but they're also not fools. You know, so the, the situation with Ime Udoka, again, the, the club found out about this as far as I know in late June or early July. And they did the investigation properly, right? And this is the thing that you might say that they acted really, really quickly, but they've actually known about this for a long time. And I'm surprised that it didn't leak earlier than it did. But when it did leak, they were already at the end of it. They were putting the bow on this particular case. They knew what was after happening and they knew the action that they had to take. Now, uh, one of the, the downsides of that was that the way that the Celtics communicated this wasn't very clear. And a lot of women in the Celtics organization, some of whom I know, were going, oh, this is the one he was shagging. This is the one he was shagging. People just putting stuff up on Twitter. And the women of the organization oh, had a very, yeah. very hard time, which was, and the club didn't do enough quick enough to come out and defend them and to stick up for them and to say, look, at, stop fucking speculating because you people don't know. We're not going to be saying, so shut the fuck up, you know? So the gossip, the rumor mill started. And I know that that was very painful for a lot of women involved, you know? But if that's, Again, and I don't want to sound glib about it, but if that's the worst thing that happens, at least they saw a situation. Because my take on it is that in some way, Ime Odoka is after abusing his position of power in a sexual mm. sense, right? He's after using the position that he had as the head coach of the Celtics uh, to get sexual favors or to continue a sexual relationship that maybe he wouldn't have had otherwise. And that's a fucking awful thing to do. And we need to call those things out. So in doing that, it's a positive thing. It's a shame that there was collateral damage in the reputations of these women. But yeah, there's an awful lot that can be learned from from them lads in terms of the Olympic committees, FIFA, UEFA, and so on. Excellent. That that has summed that point up very well. Mero, where do you come into this now in terms of Shamrock Rovers and gambling companies on the jersey? Yeah, I don't know. Like, um, because I feel like if I say um I don't agree with it, but I gamble, which I do, mm. I'm a hypocrite. Like, I like I don't I, I gamble five euro a bet here or there. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't see a problem with it, for a number of reasons. A number of reasons, a couple of reasons being that the League of Ireland needs private investment to, to, to flourish and to get these spots into Europe. But that doesn't mean I don't disagree with the people that are against it. Do you know when, when Rovers played AC Milan and Paddy Power took over, Tallis Stadium the day before, like. 
I had a feeling it was going to be a, a pre-match stunt and it wasn't going to be there for the actual game. But I thought it was tacky. I thought it was stupid. But I mean, I'm I'm not very animated about the, the topic. I'm, 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 I'm afraid to say. Is that fancy? I said uncomfortable. Yeah, but like, do you see where I'm coming from? I'm, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to say I'm against it, but I have a Paddy Power account. No, I understand that. I suppose... I understand why, like, I understand why people are against it. Like, I understand why people are against... You might remember um, cigarettes in, in, in t- tobacco Formula industry one. in mm-hmm. Formula One, yeah. uh, the alcohol industry in, in GAA. Um, you know, I, I get it. I definitely get it. But I'm... I just wouldn't see myself getting too moved by it. The, the only reason I'm asking that one is just because, and it's something that Phil mentioned earlier on, and as I said, as he was saying it, was, I had about 15 questions in my head and I was trying to plot a roadmap to each bit. Right? So He's taking piece. notes on a roll of wallpaper there, Mary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's that piece around, like, you know, like, vote with your, vote, vote with your money. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> the gambling, I, I'm just saying, like, I... I wouldn't class myself a gambler, but every so often I'll put a bet on for what I say is to keep it interesting, which is probably the worst thing you can do, right? Yeah. But but at the same time, you know, if you're watching a match on live TV, if you're if you're in the stadium, if you're and you're getting all these fucking gambling things pushed at you, pushed at you, bet three six five of Ray Winston's head floating on your fifty five inch plasma TV telling you the halftime odds and next goal scorer odds and all that. Bet in-game, bet live, bet now, bet now, bet now, you know? And it's, I suppose... When no, none of those it, things make me bet, though. No, but the, don't make you bet, right? But what I'm, what I'm yeah, getting yeah, at, yeah. I suppose, is... They're, 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 gambling is a problematic industry, right? I'm not against it. I do, I, I get what you mean. I'm slagging you saying, it's that fancy I sit now uncomfortable. I'm probably no better, right? <laughs> it's, it's one of them where I'm kind of like, I just don't think it should have carte blanche the way it kind of does. Yeah, and, and look, see, I'm, 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 it's problematic, and that's yeah. that's where I'm uncomfortable. So with when, it. I, when I when I when I see football clubs, when I see football clubs with it across their jersey and their stadium is littered with, you know, gambling logos and all that kind of stuff, it it just makes me raise an eyebrow to it and kind of go, is this is this right? Like, is this what we should be doing? I feel like, I, I don't know if it's, if it's similar I, situation to Sweden. I, like, but. I would raise, Danny, I would raise the same eyebrow. I don't agree with it. Um, I'm just not, I'm just not moved by it. Do you know what I'm, And I mean that in terms of, say, activism point of view. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm as I get older, my, my tolerance for things is getting really low because, you're torn into an angry old man. It happens to all of us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I'm just not like because of my disability and I've been fighting for things all my life and nothing has really changed. I'm kind of, I suppose I'm at my tether in that in, in that subject where I'm kind of like, oh, like they're not going to change. There's no political will to change things. So I'm not going to take on another activist role, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I'm, like, I'm not suggesting like that, and like being vocal on, on social media. No, 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 no. I'm just trying to articulate my point of view okay. where I understand I have empathy for people who perhaps want it banned on the jerseys, uh, on the stadiums. I get all yeah. that. But I, like at the end of the day, I gamble. So I, I like a bet. I like five euro bet for a match. You know, as you said, to keep me interested. 
Yeah. I did, I did a thing the other day, lads, right? I got a, a, a phone call off this lad. He's a lovely fella. And I, I I sort of, I know him as an editor, right? And he said, oh, I'm working for this website. Yeah, deadly. He said, listen, would you do me a do a job for me? I said, yeah, yeah, no bother. What is it? He says, oh, it's for this website. And he said the name, the name of it, and it did, nothing clicked with me at all. I'd never heard of it, you know? I says, yeah, it's just to interview the Swedish heavyweight boxer, Otto Valin is his name, right? He boxed against Tyson Fury and he opened yeah. a big cut on Fury's eye, went 12 rounds, came out of nowhere. Nobody knew who this log was. And, you know, I was actually thinking, I said, fuck it, I meant to ring your man, so I may as well do this and get the few bob for it, right? But it turns out that the site it was for isn't a sports news website. It's one of these gambling and gambling aggregators, right? So they put up the new, and then they put on, oh, you can bet on William Hill, or you can bet on 365, yeah. or you can bet on Paddy Power, that kind of thing. As a rule, I don't do, I don't accept payment. Like, you know, I might give a comment to somebody, but I don't usually work for anything that's related to gambling, right? And that's... It, I just the misery that causes, right? We're not the target of a lot of those ads, lads, right? Mm. We've all put on, like, I love to sit here. The nights I'm working with the UFC, uh, the numbered cards, the pay per view cards, I'll bet on all 12 or 13 fights, right? I'll just pick the winner in every one of them. And now sometimes we'll be gone after the first fight in the prelims, sometimes we'll be still alive <laughs> in the co main event, right? Never won anything. And I'll put two euro on that. And then I may not bet again for another, it could go years. Like literally, yeah. I'll go to Las Vegas. I have, I, if I've gambled $10 in Las Vegas in six or seven or eight years of going over there, I, that would surprise me. Like I just don't do it. But what I think of, like I'm thinking of the industry, right? And what it's based upon, right? So the, the purpose of Paddy Power or the purpose of uh, whoever's sponsoring Shamrock Rovers or, you know, four, I think 14 or 20 clubs, actually most clubs in the Premier League now would have a, a betting partner, you know, their purpose is not to promote sport ultimately. It's to separate, you know, most people, as many people as possible from as much money as possible. And the people that I really think about in that situation are the people who are problem gamblers, many of whom are wearing the fucking shirt, right? It's a huge problem among footballers. It's a huge problem in the League of Ireland. It's a huge problem in the Premier League. Gambling is a terrible problem. And what bothers me about them is not that they advertise at football, okay? It's private businesses. It's not legal. Go ahead. But what are you doing for these people who wind up in trouble, right? And I still hear stories to this day from footballers and from athletes. You know, you go back to Paul Merson betting on NFL. He didn't even know the rules of American football back at the time. And this was telephone gambling. He was calling a bookie and placing bets in that country. That still exists, right? And people who work in the affiliate gambling industry will tell you because they might get 40% of what the gambler loses, right? And the bookmaker's happy to give that to them because it's, okay, here's another fucking high roller. Get him in there. I'll take 60%, you take 40%. And they are, you know, these people are losing money and the affiliates themselves can earn huge amounts of money on these things. And that's what I object to, right? If you're selling cans of Coke or if you're selling cans of Miller Lite or Modelo or Guinness or whatever else like that, and there's a margin on that that they're making 10, 20, 50 cents a pop. If you're selling a Heineken for a five or whatever, it's probably about fucking 10 quid in Temple Barber now there's a margin on it gambling is different right and as Declan Lynch the Irish writer who works for the Sunday Independent will tell you gambling is the one addiction that you cannot see externally right so if you're taking smack or if you're taking coke or if you're drinking too much or if you're smoking too much weed or whatever eventually your outward appearance is going to reflect your inner physical state right with gambling that doesn't happen right people could go you know I've had situations where it's just somebody come to me and say yeah I lost, I lost 20 grand over the last four months you you fucking what because yeah. you can't see it now they might look a little bit tired because they've been up betting on the NFL and the NBA which they know fuck all about but that's the only outward sign of it whereas a, another a, a physical addiction is going to manifest itself in different ways and that's the problem that i have with gambling whereas in most of scandinavia 
in Norway, Finland and Sweden, you have gambling monopolies, right? Svenska Spel is here. I think the head of security of Svenska Spel is actually a girl from Cork, as far as I know. Uh, in Norway, you have Norsk Tipping and in uh, Finland, they're called PAF, right? And they do these pools, coupons. And there is gambling there, but it's very seldom single bets on single outcomes, right? Mm. It's mostly, you know, a coupon of pools or you have to pick three winners in a trotting horse race or whatever, right? Very strictly regulated. Now, the advent of the internet means that you've all these Maltese companies which are sponsoring, you know, TV broadcast. The broadcasts are now broadcast out of London so that they can attach these betting ads to them. So it's creeping in here as well. But I think Unibet, you know, Unibet, the, the yeah, bookmakers, yeah. they've actually been fined by the Norwegian uh, government, like something like, if it's, I think it might be 1.2 billion euros or something ridiculous like that, because they've broken the rules for gambling in Norway and for Norwegian account holders, right? So it's always been very strict here. Of course, in Sweden, as I've mentioned to you before, all the off licenses here are state owned and there's no fridges. So if you want to buy a can of cider or a can of beer, you have to take it home, stick it in the fridge, or else you're taking it outside, you're sitting on a bench and you're knocking the thing back, right? Why is there no fridges? Because they don't want to encourage um, like rapid consumption, right? So, and they're also closed on Sundays. And one of the things about that is, Graham, right, that if you talk to anybody who's been addicted to alcohol in this country, right, so they're usually open. I think the latest they close on a weeknight is 8 o'clock, and then they close at 3 o'clock on a Saturday, right? And if you talk to any alcoholic, they will say that that 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock, when the local off-license closes, that's when they can breathe out because all of a sudden you can't do it. The strongest thing you can get in the supermarket is three and a half percent, right? And if you drink it quick enough, you may be able to get a little bit of a buzz on, but it's hard enough, right? Gambling is not like that. It's there 24 hours a day. And I wish I could say I was convinced that these guys have some sort of goodwill. You know, if they were only taking 10 or 20 or, you know, say 50 euro a month off each of us, that'd be fine, right? But they're taking our 50 euro a month plus fucking thousands off some sham who's out driving his taxi all day just to get money for another mm-hmm. bet. And one of the things that really scared me off, I still remember the lad's name. When I moved to Sweden, I lived out by the Arlanda airport here and there was a guy called Sabah, this Iraqi man who used to do what they call a black taxi, right? So you'd be in one of the pubs and Sabah would be standing there playing this, you know, on the slot machines. They have poker machines owned by Svenska Spiel, owned by the Monopoly, you know? And if you stand there playing away and you say, oh, Sabah, we're going to another pub. We'll give you a tenner to drive us there, Grant. And he'd be straight back and the money would go straight in there. And I remember everybody in this country gets paid on the 25th. And one one night he was in the pub, so I was watching a Champions League game. It was a Wednesday. And by the time the Champions League game was over, he'd lost his entire month's wages on those fucking machines, right? Now, that's to the state Monopoly that's supposed to be there to protect him, right? This is the problem I have. You know, there are certain things that we just... We have to regulate so much harder because of the misery. I mean, the amount of suicides, the amount of mental health, etc. And it might only be a fraction of the population. But you know what, lads? If I can't open a gambling account or if I can only bet 50 euros a month, I might be able to afford more than that. But if that protects you, Meryl Merrigan, or if that protects you, Danny Murray, I'm fine with that. I don't see that as any huge impingement on my, on my freedom because it's simply not that important to me, right? And that's why I think that those things have to be regulated. And if you're going to sponsor a football club, well, then I want to see what you're doing at the side of that to make sure that the people who suffer from gambling addiction, not just the gamblers, but their children, their wives, their employers. Yeah. What are you doing for those people? Because then I can take you seriously, right? And it's the same thing. Compromise is not necessarily change, right? And that applies as much to the World Cup in Qatar as it does to Paddy Power. And they need to take their responsibility as what we call corporate citizens seriously, no matter where that is in the world. Absolutely. You articulated that the way I wanted to articulate my answer. This is, this is why we get <laughs> Phil on, because we... we we meander around things with 
the la- we, we don't have the intelligence to articulate things. And then Phil comes in, he just goes, watch this, and he lobs the ball up and fucking hits a home run. <laughs> yeah. And we go, exactly, Phil. That's a exactly great fucking point, Phil. <laughs> great, lads, but I agree with you, Phil. Lads, I, what I have to say is, I listen to this podcast every week without fail, right? Sometimes as soon as it comes out, sometimes it might be a couple of days afterwards, sometimes it might be a week but I listen to every single podcast. And the amount of times I find myself agreeing with you when I'm not there. So look, at, don't be giving me credit for coming here. Like, <laughs> even, even a stopped clock is right twice a day, lads and I, I do me two <laughs> stop clocks and then I go you know? and, where, and, and where are you? you you obviously listened to last week's podcast about Elizabeth Windsor where are you with that um, I find that really difficult because like like you Graham you were mentioning there that we're getting to the stage where we're angry old men now and you're you know I'm a lot older than you so I'm an awful lot more angry than you or at least that's the way I sometimes <laughs> come across on social media and I'm trying I always I, I don't struggle to do it, but sometimes I struggle to find, you know, the compassion in myself for people, right? And I understand that the United Kingdom to me is the most gaslit nation in the world, right? These are the people who have been told that they're everything, that they're the best at everything, that everything is brilliant, and, you know, there's nobody like the Queen and other. And I have a, a, such a vast amount of sympathy for them. And then when a figurehead like the Queen dies, and like there is, there's a visceral loss for so many people. There's a visceral loss for so many people in Ireland as well. We call them Finnegale. I'm sure you've heard of them. But that loss is is keenly felt by so many people. And I I was very careful on social media. You know, I, I really wanted to put the hobnail boots on and put them in there. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to respect their sense of grief at the same time as I'm also trying to lift how she is problematic as a person, problematic as a figurehead. Everything that she stood for is everything everything I don't stand for, right? She stood for privilege. She stood for, I'm better than you just because of my last name, just because of my magic blood, you know, this line of succession, all the pomp and ceremony that goes around, I absolutely despise it, you know? And if you ask anybody at Reuters here, when they ask me to go and film the royal family here, I'm the last person they ask because I have zero respect for these people, right? And I'll have photographers there go, oh, your majesty, your majesty, can you look at my car? You go, fuck off you, you clown, right? So I'm trying to have that (laughs) compassion for people who genuinely believe this simply because they don't know any better. And the need then to point out that her past and what she has stood for from the Mau Mau people in Kenya to Bloody Sunday in Derry is extremely problematic. And we need to find, you know, we've often said that the Irish and the English are two countries divided by a common language, right? And we need to find a way of speaking about these things, of speaking about the hurt that was shared by people in the Asian subcontinent, in Africa, in in Jamaica, in places like this. We need them to understand where that comes from. We need them to understand that if we say bad things about their royals when they die, this is why, right? There's so many people... Like um, Janne Andersson, the coach of the Swedish national team, was going on, you know, he did an interview one time uh, and he was talking about, you know, who inspires you in terms of leadership? And he came up, Winston Churchill was the answer. I'm like, Janne, he was one of the greatest fucking racists known to man. Yeah. And Janne was going, what? And I was going, yeah, yeah, all that, you know, we will fight them on the I had the same conversation with Danny a couple of years ago about <laughs> Churchill. <laughs> the dear, that's Danny couldn't I, believe the quotes that Churchill came up with. Exactly. About 10 years thing- ago, Danny's like, what? Yeah, wasn't because, the version I was taught in college, lads. No, but yeah, I read because, a book. <laughs> because history is written by the victors, right? We had a funny conversation there a little bit earlier on. My 16-year-old, her friend around the corner is studying English, you know, and obviously the kids will come here with questions because my wife teaches English, Swedish, and Spanish, and I, I'm not too bad at the old English on occasion myself, and of course the kids <laughs> speak it, right? So the young one was devastated because they'd taken a bunch of English-speaking countries that they're put into little teams they're going to make presentations about. And of course... My daughter's mate wanted to get Ireland and she didn't. 
And it said she got India. She's going, what do I know about India? I was going, India's the same as Ireland, except they're brown and there's a lot fucking more of them. Right? Yeah. They were treated equally badly by Churchill. And, uh, you know, the, the partition is there between India and Pakistan, you know. And, you know, I'd love to see this as an opportunity in the passing of the torch to, to King Charles or whatever he is now, that we can start to talk about these things and what, the, you know, the Queen and the King represent to them and what that same signum represents to us. And, I think it's going to be a very long and difficult conversation, but I think that's the only way, really, that we can put this 800 years behind us, that we can put colonialism into perspective and that we can put a stop to the sort of financial colonialism and the things that we see today, right? To the point where, you know, again, when I say the most gaslit nation in the world, I'm not joking, lads. I mean, those poor people have been led to believe the most remarkable things, you know. Boris Johnson talking about the sunlit uplands of Brexit. And, you know, people saw me posting about, you know, I was saying this time next week they'll be eating out of bins, you know, in the UK. And people are going... That's very funny. I got. I'm not fucking joking, right? That's but, but, like they're eating at a food banks at the moment. Bins yeah. is only around the corner. You know, food banks were closed on the day of her funeral. This is the thing, right? And like a bicycle, fucking what do you call them? The place where you park your bikes. You know, this kind of weird stuff. But, but going back to uh, going back to Churchill there briefly. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember the start of the pandemic when our leader got up in New York and quoted Churchill to try and get us going. You see, this is the thing, because, again, history is written by the victors, right? And what what we're left with then is a version of history that forgets so many things, right? The famine in Ireland, you know, the idea that the famine in Ireland was actually the failure of the potato crop. It wasn't. We had loads of other shit. It was just taken and brought to England instead, right? And this is the version of history that finally needs to be told. And the dawn of the internet age is a great thing for those things, lads, because you can actually find a platform. There's a place for everybody to tell their story. Now, not everybody's going to pay attention, but between, you know, the fact that you can put up a website and you can take to social media and tell these stories gives us a great opportunity to bring knowledge to people and these are the people that you need to listen to when we've spoken about journalism before i've always spoken about this idea i have that when i see a story coming out about russia for example about conscripts in russia which i was working with last week people coming across the border into finland and we had people being interviewed on camera and you're saying so you're going to go back there's no fucking way they're going to answer that question. For the same reason that Hamza Chumayev can't answer the question about Kadyrov, they're not going to say, I'm not coming back. They're on a tourist visa. If a cop overhears them, he's fucked them back across the border and they'll be in Ukraine in the morning, right? My question is always, whose voice is not being heard? Right. So when you talk about what's happening in Iran, right, when you talk about what's happening to the Kurdish people in Syria, in Iran and in Iraq, right, why don't we know? their story, right? Why don't we understand the civil war that's happening in Eritrea, between Eritrea and Ethiopia? Why don't we understand that that's a result of Italian and British colonialism? Why don't we understand that Somalia has essentially been a basket case for 30 years because of the influence of the British and what they did when they pulled out? It's always when they pull out of these places. The same thing with Belgium and the Congo, right? And that's because the history was always written by the victors. And not only is history written by the victors, lad, it's written with a big fucking bucket of whitewash and a six-inch brush, right? It's not designed to be brought to the fore again. And that's what gives you the, the situation where the leader of the Irish Republic can stand up and quote Churchill, who essentially, wasn't he responsible for the Balfour uh, Declaration, the partition of Palestine, all these things? Their mistakes are still here today, right? Now, we just don't realise that because so much whitewash has been painted over these things. And again, I think that if the path to enlightenment and the path to to an improved world is solidarity between us as peoples, between us as Irish men and women, Somali men and women, Kurdish men and women, 
English and British and Welsh and Scottish and Northern Irish men and women. It's through that sense of enlightenment. And that can only come through compassionate conversations like the ones that we try to have every time we get on this podcast. We have to try to extend them. And sometimes that means not, you know, setting fire to the touch paper of the things that you and I and maybe Danny would have said about the death of Elizabeth Windsor, right? It means having that, you know, letting certain things go unsaid, but trying to steer the conversation in a direction of, okay, that was the world that she created. That was the world that she presided over. Can we make it a better one? Can we find a way of making this better together? What were the bad things from, from her reign that we don't want to repeat? We, we um, really could have done with this sense of maturity when we recorded last week. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, from a man who won't have a toaster in his gaff, I don't know if there's anything I can teach you about anything. I mean, look, look, that, that, yeah, it's a great point, blank, point blank refuse to have a toaster in the house, lads, and I'm not for turning on that. I, I, heard he's doing, I heard he's doing the toast in the air fryer now, Meryl. Yeah, it would be surprised. I've tried it. I actually did try it. it make, mixed results. Mixed results. Really? Have you tried it? Yeah, no, it got done on both sides. He doesn't like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Phil, are, are, the, are, the, are the Swedish monarch popular? Uh, exceedingly so, right? But wow. I've always wondered, right? Because there's two things that are really popular here is the monarchy and Monty Python. And I don't know how much is just sort of tolerating them because they've been around forever. The Swedes love Monty Python. It's one of the things they love most about the English language is Monty Python sketches. If you go to somebody's summer house here, or indeed, if you go to their regular bathroom and their gaff, you'll often find a picture of the king or the king and queen in the jacks, right? And it just strikes me as being one of those things that's like, okay, is this them, you know, as a social democracy, putting them in their place or what is it? So I, I, I honestly don't know. But it is the a- throne room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is the thing. And like, and you wonder if it's sort of ironic or what. Now, they're still very much loved, but they don't have the same profile. They don't have the same devotion. They're more tolerated than the loved or respected. Now, you know, again, uh, when the Estonia ferry sank, when you had the tsunami in Southeast Asia, then they came out as the head of state. King Harold in, in Norway is the same. Um I'm thinking of, you know, the terror attacks, Anders Berling Breivik, uh, the shooting and bombing spree that he went on. Then when they step forward as head of state, I would have a, just as little time for any sort of monarchy as I would for Elizabeth Windsor or the House of Windsor, right? But they came out and they undeniably have an effect on the people. People who've grown up in a monarchy, undeniably it has an effect on them when they look to this, this head of state to, to get something out of So in that sense, they do have a value. They do have a merit. But I wouldn't imagine that they are in any way... Uh, I don't think they're held in as high esteem over there or in Denmark for that matter. Finland's a republic with a president. Uh, no, they don't have that aspect of it. I think they have a healthy distance to the monarchy in, in the Scandinavian region. Brilliant. It's, um, and, and so they should and ultimately one day as I just, yeah, any, any monarchy, I'm just not, I'm, I'm not in favour of any monarchy at all. Disband all monarchs. Um, F- Phil, the, as always, these conversations that we have with you, they're, they're the whirlwind and they go by very quickly. And I feel as though, you know, there, there's a million and one things we could continue to talk about. But uh, alas, time, time is against us. But before we go, the, your, the, the work you do, right, doesn't get enough credit. So the, the, Irish, the Irish and Sweden podcast, right, is a fascinating listen. And the characters and the people that you speak to, like, First, where do you find them first and foremost? Right. <laughs> and then just like have you have you got anything coming up that that that's exciting you, shall we say? There's a world exclusive, lads, for the What's the Story podcast. And that's coming very, very shortly. Just let me answer Danny's questions first, right? I'm a fucking moron, Dad, right? I should have been <laughs> I should have been doing that fucking podcast at 
the start of the pandemic. But no, no, fucking Muggins here. Yeah. Oh, do you know what? The pandemic's nearly over. We should do a podcast for everybody sitting at home with fuck all to do, you know? So I came up with the idea anyway. And I said, okay, because like, it just struck me. It's like, you know, this is what I do. I, I talk to people. I People tell me stories and I hear them and I reflect them back in that. And community is all I do. Like, you know, I was out playing Gaelic football. I was out with the Stockholm Gales soccer team the other night. I actually scored a dive in Harrow Merrow. Merrow. You would have loved it. It was like Henrik oh, yeah. Larson against Bulgaria in 2004. No oh, video. Yeah. Disgraceful. Yeah. Anyway. You know, actually, I, I've actually, I've heard it said that it was slightly better. That's my inner Donald Trump coming out there. Anyway. <laughs> but that, that diving header is the best diving header of all time. Unbelievable. You know, and it, 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 basically my diving header looked like an old man falling. For, you know, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. in, in my <laughs> mind, it, it looked like, which is essentially what it was, you know. But when I started the podcast, Dan, I really wanted, to, like, again, community is everything to me, right? It's it, like in, in everything I've said to you over the last, you know, hour or two hours, over every podcast we've ever said, we come back to this idea of togetherness and that all we really have is one another, right? And we're, no man is an island, right? It's one of the most famous quotes that's out there, right? We need each other to survive. And I was thinking to myself, right, how can I put, how can I put something together that we can all benefit from? And when I started to do it, it was just that the first guest on it was the ambassador because obviously, you know, he's, I'm not going to liken him to the, the, the king or the queen of England, right? He's the man who represents us over here. It was a good starting point. But very quickly, you find these different characters. And the the, the world exclusive that I have for you now is that there's a new podcast coming out, probably sometime in the middle of, uh, of October. The, the, the Irish and Sweden thing is great, but it's never going to make any money, right? Because the population here, Irish population between two and a half and three and a half thousand people, right? Now, about 10% of them listen every week, which is astounding when you have 10% of a community listen to something every week it's amazing and the fact is that they actually listen pretty much from beginning to end in the whole thing like you know which is fantastic so i'm launching a podcast now in the middle of next month called the global gale right and it's the same thing for a global audience and again it struck me that you know i'm going to keep the same conversational tone and the, the thinking behind it lads and this is going to come out hopefully in a sort of press release i'm hoping to sort of publicize as much as possible there's no such thing as an ordinary irish person at home or abroad right everybody you meet is extraordinary. Everybody has a story to tell, right? When we sit around and talk off air and we talk about Paul Howard and we talk about Gary Macca and we talk, they're just two individuals of fucking thousands that we know, hundreds of whom we share, P.T. Carroll. I mean, you could tell stories between these people forever. And that's the idea. And the idea being to hold up a mirror and A, some of those stories really deserve to be told, right? The first, one of the first episodes out is going to be with a girl called Sinead Madden from County Mayo that I used to play music with, right? She's the production coordinator for Def Leppard on one of the biggest stadium tours that took place in America this year. And we recorded the podcast in a hotel in Las Vegas, right? And it's astounding. You know, when she tells you what her daily life is like, we're one of the biggest fucking hard rock bands of all time. And the night before we were backstage watching 90,000 people going bonkers and her employers are out there in the stage and the lads come off the stage and go what do you think of that Sinead was that all right it's just it's mind-blowing right Zach Toohey who just uh, was playing Australian rules football down there he's another one I want to get on I was in touch with Terry Phelan today who used to play full back for Ireland left full played at USA 94 right mm -hmm. there's just and like when I started planning this podcast you always think because I'm sure you've taught yourselves where are we going to get the guests from and it's now at the stage I haven't even launched the fucking thing and you know it's almost as long as Dan Danny's wallpaper list of questions for me that he has there right? <laughs> So many, because so many great stories out there. But ultimately what I want to do, lads, is I want to do for the global Irish community what I've done for my own community here in Sweden. I want to have a conversation everywhere. I want to bring them things that they need to know about, like adoption information. Like, you know, what happens if I die abroad? Right? What happens if I want to be buried in Ireland diplomatically? What needs to be done for me to be buried in, in Dean's Grange or, or, you know, wherever? You know, not that there's any chance they'll just fucking tip me into the local lake here. But there you go. <laughs> 
what happens with those things? What happens if I turn up at the airport without my passport, right? So those sort of news items with a little bit of, you know, information value, I want to do them. But I want to have a conversation every week with people that you, Danny Murray, sitting in your car in Port Leash can feel, I'm part of that conversation. I can't say, Anne, because it's already happened and I wasn't there. But I want to feel like Phil is there asking the questions that I want answers to. And I want to feel like they're telling me something that gives me something. That gives me a sense of warmth. That gives me a sense of belonging. That gives me a sense of togetherness. And I also don't give a fuck if they're first generation Irish like me or if they're third or fourth or fifth generation. I've been in touch with the Milwaukee Bucks about talking to Pat Connaughton. Pat Connaughton played for the team that won the NBA Championship. Uh, So I'm going to try to get Pat on. Uh, They said he'll do it. It's just a case of when, right? Pat is an Irish passport holder. An Irish man has won the NBA finals, Dan, right? And I'm going to fucking talk to him about it and his sense of Irishness and where that comes from. And some of the stories are similar, but they're never the same. Everybody has a difference. Everybody has a story about how they came to Sweden. Some of them are similar, but they're a little bit different. And if you listen to the last episode of Irish in Sweden there with Marty McCarthy, who used to be the drummer of the Sultans of Ping, played the drums on Where's Me Jumper, the album Casual Sex in the Cinemaplex was absolutely massive in the 90s. And then, you know, he was just done with a tour with the Sultans and somebody came up to him and said, do you have a truck license? As it happens, he did. And he wound up on one of the first Oasis tours and has been working with merchandising ever since, you know. And this is the thing that, you know, we're, we're that kind of people... I think we're almost unique because I can't imagine doing a global Swede podcast because let's face it, lads, they're just not, they're neither as handsome nor as exciting as we are, you know? So that's what's coming down the line. And that really is, if you were to say to me, you have to pick one thing and stick with it for the rest of your life. I think I would pick telling the stories of the Irish community and bringing everybody in to the parlor to sit down and listen to them. Because I think that that's, this is the best value. The best thing that I can give to any of us is conversations like this one that I'm having you, we're having with you guys now, and also with you know the people you're going to talk to. Eventually, it's going to be biased. It's going to be the things I think about, the things I love to talk about. That's going to happen, right? Yeah. I'm not the be all and end all. I'm not RTE. This is public service broadcasting, but nobody owes me shit for it, right? So I get to choose what I'm doing in very much the same way that you fellas do, in very much the same way that you did, Danny, when you talked about your operation on this podcast on on many occasions. In many ways, that uh, Graham when you talk to me about, about disability on the Airman and Stockholm podcast, which is also coming back, they're the things that I truly believe have value. You can sit there writing all the match reports about, you know, the Premier League and the World Cup that you like. But if we really want to have compassionate conversations, we have to start them and we have to keep them going. And more, more, more than anything else, we have to provide a platform for people to tell their stories because it's only in sharing our stories that we get to know one another and we get to know the true value of the people that we're speaking to and that we're talking with. Love it, absolutely Daddy. love it. That's and if that, I love the name, yeah, great fucking name actually. Yeah, and if, if that Pat Connaughton podcast comes together, Phil, I'll I'll be fucking gunning to hear how you get on with him because I'm massive Connaughton fan. I do, I I actually I think he's fucking underappreciated by Bucks fans for a start. Hundred percent. And and just yeah, okay, that's you've excited me greatly here for this. Not just the Pat Connaughton end, but that's that's the that's the cherry on top. But it, the global gale just sounds like it's right up my fucking alley now. It sounds like it's going to be a cracker, man. So, yes, more of it, Phil. More of it. Deadly. And, and the, the, one, the last thing that I would promise you, lads, is that I've actually been, you know, I kind of had to force myself to do this, right? Because you know yourselves, doing a podcast every week takes a couple of hours to put together and edit and everything else like that. I said, am I really going to do this? Because there's no guarantee. I'm going to be asking people to go to Patreon. I'm going to be asking companies to sponsor. I said, no guarantee this is going to make me any money. Mm. We'll have to fucking do it. 
I don't do things for money, right? But I got a few coffee mugs made with the Global Gale logo on it. And when I come home in January, I'll be home in January the third. And one thing that we are all doing this time around, right? And Dan, I don't mind. I'll give you the money for the petrol, right? Come up from Port Leash <laughs> because you're getting one, and Graham Merrow American is getting one because you know you have a ring light, which obviously means you're an influencer. So if I obviously. give you that coffee mug, I want you to put a big smiley face on and the coffee mug up beside your lovely, beautiful, handsome head, and the same thing for Graham. Take off the woody hat, please, Graham, and put them out <laughs> your social media and help you out with promote it. But I'll definitely get that for you. There he is, lovely. We'll have we'll have an exchange in other mugs. We'll have an exchange in other mugs. I hope to see you in Stockholm on, on November set toward. Actually, we, we'll probably try to do a live Irish and Sweden podcast there and you will be up there with me when we're doing it. Lovely. I'll, I'll be in Boston, lads. So, yeah. but look, that's all right. Don't worry. That's all right. That's all right. Um, Philip, it has been an absolute pleasure, my man. And uh, you've, you've given me double excitement now. I'm looking forward to January already. Um, but if, if people do want to follow you and they want to learn more about the Global Gale or Man in Stockholm, Irish in Sweden and all the other bits and bobs that you put out into the universe, where can they do so? The best thing to do is follow me on Twitter at Philip O'Connor. Um, the Irish in Sweden, everybody gets goes through the Twitter account at some point, right? Uh, there will be separate uh, Instagram accounts, that kind of thing, for the Global Gale and for Irish in Sweden. But follow at Philip O'Connor. Everything will turn up there. If you want to have a listen to Irish in Sweden, I think that it's actually, as you kindly mentioned, Dan, you enjoy it despite the fact that you don't know the people, you don't live here, but you still get a bit of a buzz out of it when you listen to the episodes. It's so fascinating, man. Just fascinating. It, it's good crack and I think it's a nice little insight into a small community abroad as well you know so people want to yeah. listen to that in the meantime but as I say towards mid-October towards the end of October that's when the Global Gale episodes are going to start to come and the big thing really is lads and I'd be really delighted if people could find you know me on social media at Philip O'Connor on Twitter that kind of thing but the big thing is sharing right because the one thing that drives me mad I'm sure you'd have this you know on a regular basis as well you know uh, somebody says to you, you know, oh, God, I never knew you had a podcast and my fucking head explodes. I'm like, what do you think I've been doing for 20 years? You know, oh, yeah, I never knew about the Irish and Sweden thing. You go, oh, Jesus. So if you have the chance, if you listen to something and you enjoy it, you know, I always try to share your podcast and Sean Sheehan's and PC, whatever they're doing, mm. because th- you never know the day or the hour when somebody goes, you know, oh, fuck, I never realized that. And then they get into it and they get involved in that kind of thing, you know? And like yeah. I say, it's nothing to do with money. I don't fucking care. I work on brown, uh, blind, but I need to call him brown boy. Blind boys, uh, silent, uh, soundless principle. I, said, I don't care if people pay for it or not, right? If enough people pay for it, great, we'll keep it going. If not, we'll do it in some smaller form. If you can pay, great. If not, that's not the point. But put it out there for everybody to hear. Money should never be a barrier to enjoying award-winning podcasts like the WTS pod or indeed the Global Gale when it finally makes it out into the universe. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, Mero, if people want to check out what we've put out into the universe previously, where can they do so? They can go to WTSpod.com or they can search WTSpod on any podcast provider. He's uh, reading it again, Dan. I'm not reading it. it. I, mean, I know like, it off by heart now. We're not, we're You're looking at the bottom of the screen. No, I'm not. Like. I, I was stuttering because I was like, oh, I was nervous. Uh, <laughs> you can search WTSpod on any podcast provider. Uh, I use Podcast Republic, but you can get an Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Podbean, uh, anywhere, everywhere you can get a podcast. Uh, I'm at Danjo Murray. Oh, no, I'm not. Stop confusing me, Phil. He's at Danjo Murray on Twitter. Just read the thing and get it over. Come oh, on. Phil, you have him rattled. You have him rattled. And that's all for this week. Thank Here you. Full hearts. Bad news. Good luck. <laughs>